I have many titles for this evening's uh, talk, and I, it went through many permutations and iterations today. Uh, the first one that came to me was, uh, a title was Reclaiming, Reclaim Your Heritage. And it, it came because I was thinking of a, a passage from, from Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come home, reclaim your heritage. And in a sense, uh, that's what we're doing here. Is we're not just, um, not just metaphor, but, but in truth, we are, at least it's possible to recover or reclaim uh, the greatest riches as, um, as all of us have been pointing to, um, the greatest riches being the very nature of our own hearts, the very nature of our own minds. So easily overlooked, but such a precious jewel, the precious jewel of awareness as Carol was so beautifully highlighting the other night. So I speak of this true heritage in the face of of also meeting with you over these uh, five days of practice. And, and I've really been touched by your, your struggles, uh, your heartaches, your losses, your grief, your frustrations, there have been many, uh, your desires, um, your, your, wound, your wounds, your wounded pride. Um, and I think mostly your humanity your, what I think of it, your, uh, your individuality, your unique expression of life in the form of a human being. Uh, even though we talk a lot about, um, about seeing through the self-illusion, seeing through our, um, the, seeing through the ego, there tends to be this view that somehow we have to um, somehow that we don't exist or that we have to get rid of ourselves in some way. And in a way, you, that may be true. But no doubt, each of us here, sitting in this room tonight, dealing with our own profound drama, our own personal story, is so unique and precious. And each of our stories is fantastic, painful, beautiful. And you also talked about how you've worked with your your predicament and how your many people described how they've become over time more kind, more balanced, have more equanimity in the face of the uncontrollability of what presents itself in our life, the loss and the change. And found your, you found your composure and change. And it's been really touching to, to meet with you. And I see in everyone here uh, that you are perfectly yourselves. You are just yourselves. The only possible way you could be, uh, given all the myriad causes and conditions, all the forces that have come together from, from beginningless time, not one of us could be any different than the way we are here. That this functional manifestation, this functional self that each of us is, this is not a problem. 
And this is not the problem that the Buddha, I think, was talking about. What the Buddha was much more concerned about was the, the virtual version of ourselves that plays out in our minds. The, what some have called the, the excessive selfing, the excessive self-referencing that only goes on in our minds, that doesn't necessarily reflect our immediate and direct experience, which in some fundamental way is just our immediate experience is just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking. Did I miss any? <laughs> touch, touching. After being so touched, I forgot touch. <laughs> but this is what the teachings are pointing to, to awaken to this, uh, the illusory version of ourselves that plays out in our minds. Certainly having mercy and compassion to how it became generated and how it gets fed, but to uh, begin to make a shift from being completely identified, as Diana spoke about last night, to recognizing this field of, of um, this identity as just a field of disparate of disparate thoughts coming and going, as Mark mentioned this morning, arising and passing away like clouds passing through an empty sky. Even as I'm beginning this talk, I'm looking at you, and I imagine that if you were to just stop for a moment and just feel the, the living reality of yourself, of you sitting here, on the sense of yourself on present evidence, as Douglas Harding says, it's not likely that you would find much evidence for the way that you've, you, you usually think about yourself. What would you find? What do you find when we suspend those beliefs for a moment? Isn't it true that we just find Nothing you could put your name on or put a name on. You find hereness and nowness, you might say. As I say this, I feel all of a sudden a, a kind of melting away of, of any sense of separation from you. As long as I'm not separating myself out in my, in my mind for a moment, I feel very connected to you. And perhaps you feel more connected to me. The fact that you've been sitting for five days uh, may actually help you to begin to see the difference between this narrative that runs through your mind and your immediate experience. And that speaks in some way to, uh, to I think, what Diana was referring to last night, where she said that our minds, this, this mind, our nature, can be, it can be cultivated. Uh, it, can be, it can be trained. It can be shaped. And this is actually a, a wonderful thing about our practice and about our minds. And it's not something we hear about so much in our world, 
that our hearts, our minds can be shaped or trained or turned in the direction of that which leads to more happiness and away from, from suffering. But in a sense, that's what we've been doing over and over again. We've been shaping our attention, turning our attention toward attention and away from our fixation on, I think Carol used the words of Nisargadatta, uh, the obsession with what next. I actually thought that was my line. (laughs) 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 Just kidding. But after five days of shaping our mind, of turning ourselves toward the Dharma, toward the truth of of this moment, toward the Buddha, the one who knows within our hearts, it's likely that you've quieted down. And that what some people call that sacred monotony of coming back again and again and again to awareness, to awareness of what's present and just being with things in their simplicity, it has the effect of our senses becoming clear and clean and our, our, our minds becoming much more bright. The sounds are much more acute after five days. The smells that much more vivid. The, the taste that much more alive, the way food, the burst of, of flavor. And the mind quite naturally has become more uh, reflective. It's shown its uh, more of its capacity to to see things, to reflect what it is that's coming through, that's arising. And so naturally, you have come to see uh, the amazing nature of your mind. How just sitting here, doing this simple activity of atten- of uh, reconnecting with what you may have discovered is your natural state, the naturalness of being aware. And if I ask you right now, try not to be aware, what happens? Isn't it most primary? Isn't it most natural? You've both discovered the, the nature of, of your the sense of awareness, maybe have some sense of being aware of awareness. But you've also seen the amazing um, nature of the thinking mind that Mark introduced this morning. And how when we sit, we're simply asked to be present and without any prompting at all, completely unbidden, this complete cascade, this waterfall, I like to think of all hell breaks loose. It just Our mind just generates into this immediate present from who knows where, since we have no evidence for a past or a future here and now. The past is, we only know as an idea in the present. The future we only know as an idea in the present. So, but into 
this what could be called, what some call in, in the Tibetan tradition, they call a mind stream. This flywheel of thinking comes. Those 65,000 thoughts that Mark spoke about today. And another little addendum to that little statistic is that of those 65,000 thoughts each day, 90% are repeats from the day before. <laughs> this is amazing. You, you have to marvel at how this happens. And in our arrogance, in our misperception, it seems as we somehow, through another twist of thinking, we imagine that there's someone in there who's doing it and making it happen. And then, of course, what happens? We blame ourselves for, for doing it. But you get to see, as your mind becomes more reflective, how this flywheel of thinking, this waterfall, happens completely by itself, that the thoughts are their own thinkers. But what's even more amazing and what's available to us, what we can begin to notice as we slow down, both in the way that the way it manifests physically and how it plays through our mind, that somehow or other, these 65,000 thoughts, through a, a, a trick of consciousness, through a kind of uh, optical delusion, somehow get culled together to form some kind of cogent or, or seemingly consistent narrative about an imagined person called me. And we call it, of course, I call it the how am I doing story. And I'm either doing great, depending on if a pleasant experience is occurring, or I'm not doing so great. And, and of course, then, especially the times that I'm not doing so great, that narrative takes on, and I think maybe what's most chronic for, for most of us, we have our own version of it, is it, it calls together into the, a version of the story that there's something wrong here. There's, and the extension of that, that there's something wrong with me. And we've talked about it in terms of the comparing mind, how and the doubting mind that says, you know, I'm not getting it, and everybody else is. I'm miserable here, and everybody else is getting enlightened. It's, this, is a, this, is a, this is a story. If this story, if this little narrative um, goes unnoticed, what happens? It proliferates and proliferates into this profound drama of the imagined seeker, the imagined sufferer, the imagined one who is not okay, the one who you may imagine yourself to be probably relates to this right now. <laughs> but in the mind of the imagined sufferer, what do you do if you're suffering out of love for yourself? You figure out how to end suffering. And so then what happens? We get more proliferation. The word in the Pali is papancha. Or I actually have a, a translation that I got from my friend Anna Douglas who did, uh, who did uh, a little more research than me on the, on the word papancha. 
And since she did, I wanted to uh, give her attributions here. There's two translations. The unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects. That's one. This one's a little bit more pithy. The propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary (laughs) that that obscures the bare data of cognition. (laughs) And again, what is the bare data of cognition? Seeing, hearing, smelling, (laughs) tasting, touching, (laughs) thinking, and the consciousness of these arising and passing. The rest is a story. The rest is an elaboration. In the teachings, there are four kinds of, of papancha, four kinds of this effusion, of this eruption of, of trains of thought worlds. There is papancha that is, um, that is associated with desire, and we've talked about that a lot, how, how some pleasant moment, some moment of just fleeting reaction in the mind of liking can easily, if unnoticed, be followed by a... And the, and the pressure that's created of liking creates a little tension. That pressure spawns this kind of compulsive desire to go after that, um, that experience of pleasure. I was telling on a, on a month-long retreat, I was remembering <clears throat> a time where I was just resting at ease in a third-floor apartment in San Francisco and it was 10 at night, and I'd gotten, I'd crawled into bed. And an image in the mind came of a double rainbow ice cream cone. <laughs> and it started as a thought. I was a little bit unmindful late in the day. Mind was weak. And before I knew it, it had spawned this intense desire. Of course, what happens when that intense desire flows through the mind and goes unnoticed? The body forms around it, and before I knew it, the clothes were on, (laughs) down the stairs, in the car, up five blocks to the ice cream parlor, grabbed the ice cream, licked it, and of course, there was a moment of pleasure. But then what happens? I had, in that process, I had been born into this mini incarnation of the one whose happiness depended on getting that ice cream cone. <laughs> and then once I got what I wanted, I was born again as the embarrassed one, <laughs> the, the self-conscious one, half-dressed. We all have versions of this. And what do we normally do? The embarrassment and the awkwardness of the dissatisfaction that comes in the wake of, our, of feeding that wanting mind uh, is kind of un... It, feels kind of lousy. It's like, oh, God, I was just dragged along. I'm so weak. And, you know, the whole story that goes with that. And so rather than actually deal with the unsatisfactoriness of it, what does the mind usually do? It generates another desire. And, of course, that's, that's endless. Then the next kind of 
proliferation is around aversion. And we've talked about the, the phenomena of the, um, on retreat of the, the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, where there's, there's something, buddy, who threw a, a slight trigger of something that has an association in your mind of unpleasantness, your mind doesn't like it, something about that person, and before you know it, that person has become public enemy number one, <laughs> the cause of all your suffering, this, and the secret to happiness is somehow being able to change that person, get rid of them, and you know, of course it can extend to that homicidal feeling that a few, I forgot who, yeah, Mark spoke of. <laughs> and many of us have felt, and myself included, so there's the papancha around desire, aversion, papancha around views and opinions. So much identity, so much drama that plays out in my mind around my ideas and opinions about how I should be, how the world should be. For some reason now as I'm, I'm talking about this, I'm remembering a, a time where I was driving in the, the San Francisco Bay Area and I was driving slowly along this, uh, this road, you know, but going the speed limit along with my wife, um, Annie, and, and Molly in the back seat. And all of a sudden, as I was driving along, we came upon this car that was um, this purple Porsche. And I've never had a thing about Porsches, but it, it was purple, and it, <laughs> so it, it triggered my thought that people shouldn't have purple cars. <laughs> and then they, they were dressed a certain way that I didn't think they should be dressed that way. So. And then they were, what was, what was most difficult to deal with is that they were going way below the speed limit <laughs> and holding everybody up. And that triggered that, in that moment, I was born into suffering. Born into the one who knows that how people should be and how people should drive, how they should dress and where they should go. And fortunately, at the time, I was really working with the, the um, trying to realize the direct experience of the Four Noble Truths so that it didn't remain in the realm of theory, so I could actually see it in action. So I said, oh, yeah, this is dukkha, and the cause of it is my, this grasping at this, this story about how people should be. And of course, meeting the light of awareness, that whole thing began to melt away and little humor came. And uh, of course, that means that there was the end of suffering. And I had been practicing awareness at the time so that there was a, um, I was cultivating the path of awareness and path to the end of suffering. So we can begin the difference between being dragged along by one of these thought streams, one of these internal dramas, to that shift to being able to notice it is the shift between bondage and freedom. And it, it happens in any moment. So this is why it's so um, important and so valuable to exploit that capacity we have in our hearts to be awake and aware in our minds, and to nurture it whenever I can, and not wait for the, the painful moments, but to be nourishing it so it just pops up on its own in those times of need. Last but not least, the fourth kind of, of papancha 
of compulsion, compulsive thinking is, uh, is compulsive thinking about oneself. And, and that's, the, that's the running narrative about uh, how I'm doing and that version that I'm somehow that I'm not, um, I'm not doing so, so well. And of course, if this goes unnoticed, I spend a long time confused, spend a long time entranced in a belief that, that my sense of well-being um, is, is somehow dependent on things changing, on things being different than the way they are, as, and, or me being different than the way I am. And then once I feel that things have to be different, then my mind generates more thinking about what I need to do. So strategizing, planning. And then I have been born into that state of becoming. Hostage to, hostage to the imagined future. And what happens when I am hostage to the imagined future? What happens when the future is the source of my well-being? What is it, how does it color the present moment? What happens to the moment that I'm actually living in? It seems like it's not quite enough. And of course, once my sense of well-being is, is hostage to the future, then the future, the unborn future, holds all the um, pressure all the intensity of having to make me happy. And then there, it leaves the question, what if it doesn't? What if the future doesn't make me happy? The other effect of, just to elaborate a little more on this, again, on, in a fundamental way, nothing has really happened. I've never left the present moment. I've always been and always am right where I am. But my mind has taken me on a ride into, into an, uh, a trance, into an, a mini incarnation that says, I, th- this is not okay right here. And once that this isn't okay, and once the future holds the pressure of making me happy, and once I realize that it may not make me happy, then what do I feel? I feel worried. But then the present moment, left, feel it, left as not enough, becomes as Eckhart Tolle says, if I can find it here, the present moment loses its enoughness. That's my version of it, but he, he describes it as the present moment takes on three characteristics. It either becomes a means to an end, like just a pass-through on our way to somewhere else. Now, you can see that there is only now, so there, there is no other, there is no else. So it becomes a means to an end, or it becomes an obstacle to where I want to be. Any of you experience that? Or it becomes the enemy. So as a means to an end, it, it, the present becomes the means to an improved future. This is a trance. 
and it obscures the open secret that you may have tasted in that moment at the beginning of this talk where you simply let yourself be here without, without referring to your memory or your plans. What did you experience? What do you experience when for a moment you suspend your, your um, expectations of what's next or your memories of what have gone? What do you experience when you're just simply present? What dawns immediately? Anybody willing to say out loud? I know it's, we're in silence, but... What's that? Fix it. Fix it. Hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> What's that? Contentment. Contentment. What else? Freedom. Simplicity. Simplicity. Calm. Calm. Awareness. 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 What was that one? Boredom. <laughs> now you're consulting your memory. <laughs> but thank you. Now, I've done this quite a lot before, and in most cases, and almost mostly when one is invited to simply see what you are, what your experience is, what the very nature of your mind is on present evidence without reference to the past or the future. What most people will describe is a sense of peace, contentment, freedom, awareness, openness, enoughness. And there's no trick involved. All we have done is have sensed what it's like, what our nature is like independent of our ideas about ourselves. It's suspending that view. So as an obstacle, which is a, to, as the present moment being an obstacle to getting where we want to go, um, it colors our experience that life, we start to feel like life is a problem to be solved. Any of you feel that? Do you recognize that this is just a way of framing it? This is a, this is a story. I, um, when I was thinking about this, this sense of life as a problem to be solved, I, I was thinking about the way that I handled this uh, project, this home improvement project that uh, I got involved in many years ago. And I was... Uh, I was, I was doing, I bit off more than I could chew, and I was doing um, everything to somehow make it through this, um, this project. And I noticed that I was, my, tum, my stomach was getting tighter and tighter and tighter, and my heart was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And I realized that I was, uh, that it was, that everything I was doing was this problem that needed to be solved, this my happiness became all about getting to the end of this project. And then I realized, as many people do who have done home improvement projects, <laughs> is that they're endless. 
<laughs> and of course, we can extrapolate that to self-improvement. It's endless. And so in any way that we're seeing our self-improvement as a problem to be solved on our way to somewhere else, on one hand, it's completely understandable from the perspective of the imagined sufferer. But it is possible within the span of our practice, within the span of a moment, to see that this is a drama that's playing in our mind, that this is an illusory version of ourselves, that our true nature, the open secret, is that we are fundamentally completeness and happiness itself, here and now. As Nisargadatta, who's been quoted many times on the retreat, says, when your mind is free, momentarily free, or kept away from its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb this quiet and you stay in it, you will discover that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. Once you've been through this experience, and I think everyone here has been through this experience of tasting these moments where you are free of your preoccupations and your, ver- your views of yourself, If you stay with this experience, if you taste this experience and stay with it, you will discover that it's, wait, I'm repeating, light and a love you've never known yet, you recognize it at once as your own nature. You'll never be the same person again. The unruly mind may break its peace and obliterate its vision, but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken attachments release, attachments to these stories, and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. This is the invitation of our practice, why we're sinking in over and over again. Mark used the word permeated, permeate the breath, to, to, to align ourselves with this sense of immediacy again and again. This is where we discover the open secret that whatever we are searching for is already resting quietly at home on your own cushion. So just to fill in the the, uh, last piece of the coloring of the present moment, when the present moment is treated as an enemy, uh, this usually expresses itself as uh, kind of negativity and uh, kind of negative self-views and a kind of chronic um, chronic uh, feeling that uh, I'm not okay and this present moment is not okay. And uh, it becomes not only an obstacle, it becomes something that I fight with. And many of us just innocently struggle and fight with the present moment. And our practice, again, is about about simply knowing what is present, not struggling, not fighting. We use the language a lot in our practice of working through, of struggling with, 
And this kind of thinking keeps us bound in the trance of time, in the trance of becoming. And so we can start to notice this. And the, the great news is, is that shift to noticing what my mind is doing is I have shifted in that instant from being bound, being caught, incarnated in that, that dreamscape uh, to, to being free, open. And then when we're present and open, we realize that in that openness, and maybe it's, it's, it's this openness that makes it possible to plant seeds and to shape our minds and to orient ourselves toward, toward ease and freedom and love, we discover that there is this amazing creative potential right here. That in, in a sense, this moment that we're all sitting in, it has, has no meaning at all. It's empty and open. Unless you fill it with something. So what is your mind filling this moment with? I like this. I don't like this. This is an obstacle. This is a means to getting to the end of the talk. This is a, whatever it is. Just know that every moment is open in that way. Just to emphasize this a little bit more, just so that we can begin, become more familiar with the chronic ways that we, um, we think and then incarnate in our thoughts and then live in those virtual thought worlds. Uh, just consider for a moment what your, as we often like to joke, and I think maybe uh, I learned this from Jack um, 30 years ago, but what, what is your top tune that your mind plays? And when I say this, I mean it in the sense of what is the chronic, what is the version of yourself that repeats over and over? Your version, your big issue, your sense of yourself that is not quite enough. And of course, we, we always have to do this with the, with the reference that it's not really possible to find that in this instant. So we have to consult our memory to, to pull this one up. But this is what we do. We tend to, at least I know the way that I do this, I somehow dig into the, what my teacher in India called the graveyard of memory, the garbage heap of memory, even though memory is a beautiful thing and it's wonderful to be able to recall things. But often the things that I pull out of the, the heap of memory are distortions and views about myself that are not accurate. But what do you pull out of yours? could be something to the effect of, I'm not clear enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not accomplished enough, I'm not productive enough, I'm not, I'm not enough, I'm too much. <laughs> I've heard that one many times before. I'm too little, I'm too big. Anybody willing to say? <laughs> Covered them all. Covered them all. So we recognize these because this is part of the, the play of our mind. And 
they tend to, these take root in our bodies and our lives form around these. And this happens so innocently as, you know, in hearing all of your, your stories and the way you, you came to your views so innocently and honestly through trauma, through loss, through whatever may have happened in your life, through cultural um, biases, through racism, whatever it might have been, still we tend to be limited by these versions of ourselves that are, that are, um, that are certainly part of our, our conventional experience of who we are. But what's possible in the meditation practice is to not be limited by those views, and, but to see what's beyond them. So we take a view like, I'm not enough. That seems to be the composite. There's something wrong with me or I'm not enough. And we take it and we look at it. And normally what we do, if we're feeling that and our body is shaped around that and we're, we're kind of uncomfortable and agitated a lot and our, we're hostage to the future and we're all busy trying to get to that, that next place, the tendency is to, to then look into our past and it can be very useful to do a historical reflection to go to therapy, to, um, to do all sorts of, use all sorts of tools to somehow come into some understanding of how we ended up the way we are. But that still reinforces the belief that there's something wrong. And somehow the one who is suffering has to be the one, then becomes the one who's going to end it. And so a whole new identity takes place. So let's just take it, instead of doing a historical retrospective, instead of doing our usual usual psychological reflection, let's just look at what that really is, that sense, I am not enough. Let's look at what it is, what it is on in the present. And let's kind of dismantle it, deconstruct it, because this is one that repeats so much. And let's see what it's really made of. So one of the ways that one of my teachers did, and I've kind of made a, a slight hybrid version of it, is I take that, that view that I'm so identified with, I'm not enough in some way, and I really start to check out what it is in the present. So I start to dismantle it. So let's really hold on tightly to whatever our version is of I'm not enough, and let's feel it for a moment. Are you willing to play with me? I'm not enough. And let's just start to unwind that a little bit to see what that's really made of in the present. What's the nature of that thought? And let's just let the enough fall off of that sentence. And then we're left with the sense of I'm not. Already it's not so bad. I'm not. So once we become this or that, boy, it's, we're endlessly proliferating. So let's just stay with I'm not. We can even kind of tense up around a little, I'm not. Let's remove the not, no pun intended, and stay with the sense of I am. Already we're, I is not a problem, even though our ideas suggest I is a problem, but just a sense of I am, not a problem. 
Just feel that for a moment. And then unwind it a little more and remove the am. Just stay with the sense of I. And then with the full knowledge that you can, you can pick it up again, and you will pick it up again, it's completely available to you. Just for one moment, see what the nature of that thought is. Just for one moment, just remove the eye. See what's left. experience in that that moment free of ideas. This is how Rumi puts it. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. And Punjaji, who I quoted before, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by noticing the origin, the nature of these I thoughts. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachments to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. So where is that version of yourself right now? How do you feel for a moment being free of your, as one of my teachers called, your cherished view? The one that you bow to, the throne that you bow to every day again and again, innocently and unconsciously.
I was so impacted by it. Some of you have heard this experience before, but and someone on the retreat reminded me, um, had highlighted a, a piece of this story, and I, I decided to tell it again. But I was so um, impacted by this experience of getting really sick in India when I went to see this teacher Punjaji, and I got um, I got so sick, delirious. I had the fluids coming out of everything, and and just miserable beyond miserable for a few days. And uh, this teacher heard that I was, uh, was not well and um, sent me, sent me I, was, I was visiting and I was living across the river from where he was doing his teachings. And he sent me over a big chunk of cheese and, and, I, and I didn't know why he sent me cheese, but I, <laughs> it gave me cheese. And then I, I stayed in bed for a few days, and then I finally slowly made my way uh, over across the river to see him. And I was kind of trudging along, and I was really still sick. And I, not, I hadn't realized how much I had become so identified with it. And I, I had been just embellishing it with such drama. And so I dragged my body along the Ganges River and crossed this... <laughs> I walked across the, the long bridge to the other side of the river and I stopped at a little fruit stand and this is what the person reminded me of this part of the story. And I bought some bananas and I was trudging along this little side street to get to the place where he was doing the teachings and these monkeys jumped out of a tree and stole my bananas. <laughs> and... I finally made my way up to see the teacher and and he, um, he greeted me, and there were just a few of us sitting around with him. And he looked at me, and he said, uh, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me very intently, and he said, where is sick? And I looked, and I couldn't find sick. You know, there were still symptoms of this and that. But in an instant, the whole identity, the whole soupy, sappy embellishment of misery just lifted. And a, a sense of vitality. Obviously, when you see beyond your normal views, you get a little freedom. This is literally the invitation of every moment of simple returning to awareness. It's a split second, a half breath away. No matter where, as they say in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, no matter where or how far you wander, freedom is only a split second, a half breath away. It's never too late to recognize that clear light of noticing. So of course we are much more um, practiced at believing the narrative that flows through our mind. And so it's important, as it has been mentioned by others, to treat whatever presents itself with kindness and mercy, that it comes unbidden, it comes uninvited, based on 
forces set in motion long before any of us knew what was going on. Our confusion does not mean we're bad. It just means that we, are, we just have not been able to see clearly. And it, it's, it is because of this view of yourself as bound that you made it to this retreat. And the one that you have imagined yourself to be likely came to this retreat because something in your heart was calling you back to this, you could say, this true home. Or if not, at least wants to be free, even as you hear these words. And just like the Buddha who had that deep longing to find a reliable refuge, you sit here, you connect with your body, you align yourself with the tuning instrument of the present moment called whatever it is that's presenting itself. We use everything in the service of waking up. It doesn't matter, as Carol said, what it is that's happening. Use it all. Transform it all into wakefulness. And just as the Buddha, we sit and we notice. We notice the movements of our body ever-changing. We notice the movement of our moods ever-changing. We notice the movement of these thoughts ever-changing. We begin to see the commonality that everything has the nature to appear and to disappear, just as the Buddha did, knowing the Dharma, sitting under the Bodhi tree. And as we notice the flow of experience in those moments where we're not pushing, not pulling, simply being with the flow, our mind relaxes, we discover our, the first taste of a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening. And in this profound drama, we ask ourselves, as we recognize that everything arises, passes away, cannot be said to be me or mine, it's not ownable, then in that drama we say, well, well who am I? What am I? Where is that reliable refuge? And in a flash of understanding, we relinquish our grasp at the changing conditions, the changing sensations, thoughts, images, feelings, and our mind turns the other way. And in a flash of insight, just as the Buddha did, we realize that our own mind is nirvana, is freedom. and that there really is no independent self that's pulling the levers here. And in the absence of that, that view, that version of myself that feels so separate from the flow of life, with the suspension of those cherished views, with the sense there being not a, an independent self-existence, there is revealed the sense that there is no other. As I mentioned before, when I'm not thinking about myself for a moment, I feel so much more connected with you and everything around me. And the natural expression of my heart in the face of that openness is to want to help, is to want to be of some benefit. Because we truly are not separate. We truly do not live apart from each other. Kala Rinpoche put it this way, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. 
And when you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. But being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And our friend Nisargadatta puts it in a slightly more poetic way. He says, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. So let's sit for a moment. And I'll end the sitting with a, a chant from the, the words of Neem Karoli Baba that speaks to this inclusive open awareness. Please enjoy your nature, moment after moment. This talk was given by Howard Cohn at Yucca Valley on April 18, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio 